In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. We're back. We got number four, part four of history, science, or fiction. What do you think so far? This series is blowing my mind. I can't believe it. Well, part of me can't believe it. Part of me can believe it. It makes sense, right? There's one guy, Joseph Scalinger, and he does all the dating. Or everyone takes his idea as the right idea. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds to me like Joseph Scalinger. Like his dad was like a prominent lawyer. And his son's some fuck-off stoner that's not doing shit with his life. He's like, hey, Joe, did you get a goddamn job, Joe? I told you, Dad. I want to be a wizard, Dad. I'm doing this new interpretive dance in my, in my suit of armor, Dad. I got a jousting tournament later, okay? I told you, Joseph. We don't need another Uncle Merlin around. Drinking, getting all boozed up, walking around with a big floppy hat and a big beard. We don't need that, Joseph. Don't do this to your mother, Joseph. This is a very important job, Joseph. People in the future are going to need these right dates. Kid gets all pissed off. Fine, Dad. I'll do it, okay? I thought I'd make you happy. I'll do it. So he gets in there starts going through all the books. You know what I mean? Like, he has—he has no idea how to look all that stuff up. He's kind of lazy. He starts dating stuff. Yeah, why not? The 15th, 5th, 15th century? Yeah, whatever. It'll work. No one's going to read this shit anyway. <laughs> I'm just kidding. History. Fiction. Or science. 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 Yes, you know it's true. Part four, everybody. I want to say thank you to everyone taking the time to play along, listen along, and hopefully learn along. I know I'm learning a lot. And for me, as I read this, it's, it really helps me understand things better. I hope, I'm truly hopeful that you, dear listener, 
will be able to get some value out of this. So here we go, part four. Ancient historical events, geographic localization issues. 10.1. The locations of Troy and Babylon. The correct geographic localization of a large number of ancient historical events is truly a formidable task. Naples, for instance, whose name merely stands for New Town, is reflected in the ancient chronicles as the following cities. 1. Naples in Italy, existing to this day. 2. Carthage, also translating as New Town. Naples in Palestine. The Scythian Naples. See the collection of the State History Museum of Moscow. Number 5. New Rome, a.k.a. Constantinople or Tsargrad, which could also be referred to as New Town. Thus, if a chronicle is referring to an event that occurred in Naples, one has to devote all of one's attention to making sure one understands which town is meant. Troy may be seen as yet another example. One of the consensual localizations for Homer's Troy is near the Hellespont Straits. Shulman used this hypo hypothesis for solemnly baptizing as Troy, the 100 by 100 meter excavation site of a minuscule ancient settlement that he had discovered near the Hellspont. Actually, the very localization of Hellspont itself is highly controversial. The Scaligerian chronology and history tell us that Homer's Troy met its final fate of destruction and utter dissolution in the 12th through 13th century BC. However, we know that the Italian town of Troy played an important role in medieval history, particularly in the well-known war of the 13th century. This town still exists. Many Byzantine historians of the Middle Ages refer to Troy as an existing medieval town. Among them, Nicetus Aconiotus. I'm sorry for the names. I know I'm butchering them. Nicetus Aconiotus. Nicephorus Gregorius. According to Titus Levy, Troy and the entire Trojan region were located in Italy. He tells us that the surviving Trojans landed in Italy soon after the fall of Troy and that and that the place of their first landing was called Troy. Aeneas wound up in Sicily. His fleet sailed thenceforth and came to the Laurentian region. This place is called Troy as well. Several medieval historians identify Troy as Jerusalem. This fact embarrasses modern historians greatly, leading them to such comments as, Homer's actual book somewhat suddenly turns into an account of the devastation of Jerusalem. This can be seen in a medieval text describing Alexander's arrival in Troy. Page 162. For those listening, of course, I'm trying to match them up. So look for the pictures on the bottom to match, hopefully, with the words I'm saying. Anna Komenina. A medieval author somewhat unexpectedly located Jerusalem in Ithaca, the island where Ulysses was born. 
This is most peculiar indeed, since it is known perfectly well that modern Jerusalem isn't located on an island. Another name for Troy is Ilion, while Jerusalem is also known as the Ilia Capitolina. Ilina and Ilion are rather close phonetically. It is possible that the same city was called Troy and Ilion by some, and Jerusalem and Aelia by others. Eusebius Pamphilus writes that somebody referred to the small Phrygian town Petusa and Timion as Jerusalem. The facts quoted above demonstrate that fact that the name of Troy had multiplied in the Middle Ages and had been used for referring to different cities. Could an archetypal medieval original have existed? Scaligerian chronology contains information that allows the construction of the hypothesis that Homer's Troy was really Constantinople or Tsargrad. Apparently, the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great took into account the wish of his fellow townsmen and had initially chosen the place where the ancient Ilion, the fatherland of the first founders of Rome, had been located. This is what the prominent Turkish historian Jalal Assad tells us in his Constantinople. Historians proceed to tell us that Constantine changed his mind afterwards and founded New Rome nearby in the town of Byzantium. But it is a known fact in Scaligerian history that Ilion is another name for Troy. What we encounter here may well be a remainder of the fact that the same town located on the Bosporus had been referred to by different names. Troy, New Rome, Zargrad, Jerusalem. It might also be true that since Naples means new town, it was the name that had been used for New Rome as well. Let us mention the fact that Southern Italy used to be called the Great Greece in the Middle Ages. Nowadays, it is assumed that the city of Babylon was located in modern Mesopotamia. Some of the medieval texts hold a cardinally different opinion. The well-known book Serbian Alexandria, for instances, locates Babylon in Egypt. Moreover, it tells us that Alexander the Great died in Egypt as well. According to the Scaligerian version, this event took place in Mesopotamia. Furthermore, we see that Babylon is the Greek name for the settlement that had been located opposite the pyramids. The Tower of Babel? Question mark? In the Middle Ages, it had been a frequently used name for Cairo, whose suburb this settlement eventually became. The name Babylon can be translated as well as the names of many other cities, and thus may have been used for referring to other locations. Eusebius tells us that Rome used to be called Babylon. Furthermore, the Byzantine historians, often called Baghdad Babylon. Michael Sellis, the author of the alleged 11th century, refers to Babylon as one would to an existing town, not a destroyed one. In figures 1.37, we can see an ancient miniature dating from 1470 depicting ancient Babylon as a typically medieval Gothic town. The Tower of Babel is being constructed on the right. The ancient King Nimrod is also portrayed as a medieval knight in plate armor. Modern commentators deem this to be a fantasy bearing little semblance to reality. 
On the left, we see Babylon presented as a fantasy Gothic town with elements of Muslim architecture. The giant in the center is Nimrod. The construction of the Tower of Babel is pictured on the right. Page 164. It is most probable, however, that this is not a fantasy. The artist had been perfectly aware of what he was painting, and the picture reflects medieval reality. The geography of Herodotus is at odds with the Scaligerian version. Let us quote some examples from Herodotus, who plays a key role in the Scaligerian chronology. He claims the African river Nile to be parallel to Ister. That is nowadays identified as the Danube. This is where we find out that the opinion that the Danube and the Nile were parallel reigned in the medieval Europe until as late as the end of the 13th century. Thus, the mistake of Herodotus proves to be medieval in its origins. Herodotus proceeds to tell us that the Persians inhabit all of Asia to the very southern sea that is also called the Red Sea. According to consensual geography, the Southern Sea is the Persian Gulf. Giving a description of the peninsula, the contemporary historians identify with the Arabian Peninsula. Herodotus writes that it begins near the Persian land and stretches to the Red Sea. Everything appears to be correct here. However, this contradicts the opinion of those historians who identify the Red Sea mentioned by Herodotus as the Persian Gulf. This is why modern commentators hasten to correct Herodotus. Red Sea stands for Persian Gulf here. Let us continue. The Red Sea in its modern interpretation may indeed reach further up than the Persians. According to Herodotus, volume 440, but only meeting one condition, namely that the map used by Herodotus was inverted in relation to the ones used nowadays. Many medieval maps are like that, with north and south swapped. This makes the modern historians identify the Red Sea as the Persian Gulf. Although the Persian Gulf is below the Persians in this case, or to the east of them, but don't reach further up at any rate. Historians identify the same sea mentioned by Herodotus as the Indian Ocean. What we observe here is the inversion of the east and the west. Could the map that Herodotus had used have been an inverted one then? In Book 437, Herodotus identifies the Red Sea as the South Sea. This proves to be the final straw of confusion for the modern commentators who try to fit Herodotus into the Procrustean geography of the Scaligerian school and the maps used nowadays. They are forced to identify the Red Southern Sea as the Black Sea. We see yet another inversion of the East and West in relation to the Persians, thus identifying geographic data as offered by Herodotus and the Scaligerian map runs us into many difficulties. The numerous corrections that the modern historians are forced to make show us that the map that Herodotus had used may have been inverted in relation to the modern ones, which is a typical trait of medieval maps. 
as we can see, the commentators have to make a conclusion that Herodotus uses different names to refer to the same seas in his history. If we are to believe the modern historians, we have to think that Herodotus makes the following identifications. Red Sea equals South Sea equals Black Sea equals North Sea equals Mediterranean equals the Persian Gulf equals RC equals Indian Ocean. The mentions of the Christonians, the town of Creston, and the region of Crosea sound most peculiar coming from an allegedly ancient author, one consistently gets the feeling that he is referring to the medieval crusaders. Cross and crest are the roots one must associate with the Middle Ages. Just how voracious are the datings of the events related by Herodotus? The unbiased analysis of biblical geography yields many oddities as well. The inverted maps of the Middle Ages. Modern maps place the east on the right and the west on the left. However, we find that the opposite is true for many medieval maps. All of the sea charts of the alleged 14th century had the east on the left and the west on the right in the atlas. Some of these old inverted charts from Genoa can be seen in figures 1.38, 1.39, 1.40, and 1.41, which you'll be able to see below in the YouTube video. These charts may have been used by either traders or the military fleet. The word Levant, for instance, still means Oriental in French. The Middle East is also often referred to as Levant in German. This may be a reflection of the fact that the Orient was on the left of the maps. Levi means left in Russian and the adverb for on the left in Sliva. It is possible that the Russian word Levi was adopted by some of the Western European languages in order to refer to the Orient. CR parallelism glossary in Cron 7. Unfortunately, Cron 7 is not out yet. Why did the old maps, the sea charts in particular, have the east on their left and the west on their right? The reason may have been that the first seafarers of Europe would sail forth from the seaports located on the European coast of the Mediterranean, as well as the Black and Azov seas. And so they had to move from the north to the south. The south was therefore in front and the northern coast behind them. A ship captain sailing into the Mediterranean from the Bosporus would look at the approaching African coast. Thus, the east was on the left and the west was on the right. This is why the first sea charts, both the traders and the military, put the east on the left. It made sense to put it that way, which lay in front on the top of the map. Thus, the way one looks at the map corresponds with the direction of one's movement. A Modern Analysis of Biblical Geography The fact that many biblical texts clearly refer to volcanic activity has been well known to historians. For a long time, the word Zion is widely known. The Olagians interpret it as pillar. Identifying Zion as Sinai or Horeb is common in both theology and Bible studies. Hieronymus 
in particular noted that it appears that the same mountain is called by two different names, Sinai and Horeb. The Old Testament often identifies it as Sinai. Mount Zion can be translated as the Pillar Mountain. The Bible explicitly describes Mount Sinai, Zion, and Horeb as a volcano. In this case, the Pillar Mountain makes sense in the way of referring to a pillar of smoke above the volcano. We shall be referring to God as the thunderer below following the interpretation suggested in volume 2. According to the Bible, the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud upon Mount Sinai. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. There were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud. And Mount Sinai was altogether in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Exodus 19.19, Also, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings, and the noise of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. We can see an ancient engraving from a 1558 Bible. Volume 2, page 10, illustration 94. I'll see if I can look that up. The medieval painter portrays Moses ascending a fiery mountain. Furthermore, the day that thou stoodest in Horeb, and the mountain burned with fire into the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, and the thick darkness, and the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only ye heard a voice. Deuteronomy. The destruction of the biblical cities of Sodom and Gomorrah has long been considered a result of a volcanic eruption. The Bible says that the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah's brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Genesis 19.24 On Albrecht Dewar's engraving, Lot fleeing with his daughters from Sodom, we can see a volcanic eruption destroying the biblical cities of the plain in a fountain of fire and stones. Let us turn to the Lamentations of Jeremiah that contain a description of the destruction of Jerusalem. It is assumed to be an account of the destruction of the city by a hostile army. However, the text contains many fragments such as, How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? The Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations, he burned like a flaming fire which devoureth round about the Lamentations of Jeremiah 2. Then we encounter the following in the chapters 3 and 4 of the Lamentations. I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. He hath broken my bones. He hath enclosed my ways 
with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain. Thou hast not pitied. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud. The stones of the sanctuary are poured out. The punishment is greater than the punishment of the sins of Sodom. Their visage is blacker than coal. The Lord hath accomplished his fury. He hath poured out his fierce anger and hath kindled a fire in Zion. And it hath devoured the foundations thereof. Theologians insist all of this is metaphorical. However, a literal reading of the text divulges an account of the destruction of a large city by a volcanic eruption. The Bible refers to volcanic activity quite often. Here's a list of such references compiled by V.P. Fomenko and T.G. Fomenko. Genesis 1918-24 Exodus 1321-22 Exodus 14-18 Exodus 20-15 Exodus 24-15-16-17 Numbers 14-14 Numbers 21-28 Numbers 26-10 Deuteronomy 4-11 Deuteronomy 519 2021 Deuteronomy 915 21 Deuteronomy 104 Deuteronomy 3222 The second book of Samuel 22 The first book of the Kings 1838 The first book of the Kings 1911 12 The second book of the Kings 110 12 to 14 The book of Psalms Psalm 11 verse 6 Psalm 106 verse 17 Psalm 106, verse 18. Ezekiel 38, 22. Jeremiah 48, 45. Seeing these descriptions as referring to Jerusalem and Palestine and the traditional Mount Sinai is very odd indeed, since Mount Sinai located on the modern Sinai Peninsula, the modern Sinai Peninsula had never been a volcano. Where did the events really take place then? It suffices to study the geographic map of the Mediterranean region to see that there are no volcanoes on the Sinai Peninsula and there aren't any in either Syria or Palestine. There are zones of tertiary and quaternary volcanic activity, but one encounters those in the vicinity of Paris as well. There has been no volcanic activity recorded in documented history. The only relevant geographic zone that possesses powerful volcanoes active to this day is the area including Italy and Sicily, since there are no volcanoes in Egypt or anywhere in the north of Africa. We are looking for one, a powerful volcano that has that was active in the historical epoch. Two, a destroyed capital near the volcano. See the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Three, two more destroyed cities near the volcano, Sodom and Gomorrah. There is just one volcano in the entire Mediterranean area that fits these criteria, Vesuvius. It is one of the most powerful volcanoes active in the historical period. The famous Pompeii, a capital, and two destroyed cities, Stabia, Sodom perhaps, and Herculanum, Gomorrah. These names do possess a slight similarity. In A. Morozov was of the opinion that the origin 
for the name Sinai given to Vesuvius is the Latin word sinus or sino in Old Latin, mountain with bowels, and horrib has its origins in the Latin word horribilis, horrible. In 544, we can see the results of an interesting research that Morozov conducted concerning the biblical text as read without vocalizations and considering the localization of Mount Sinai, Horeb, Zion, and Italy. Let us quote several examples. The Bible says, The Lord our God spake to us in Oreb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. Turn you and take your journey to the land of the Canaanites. Theologians vocalize C-N-U-N as Canaan and localize it in a desert near the Dead Sea coast. But another vocalization is possible. C-N-U-N, Sanoa, is a variant of Genoa, the area of Genoa in Italy. Apart from that, the word Canaan sounds like the land of the Khans. The Bible gives the direction as to the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, and unto Lebanon. That is commonly vocalized as Lebanon. However, Lebanon is also often used for white and may have been used to refer to Mount Block, the White Mountain, literally. The land of the Canaanites may mean the same as the Khan's land or the land of the Khan. Just so everybody knows, I know you can't see it, but when they are talking about Canaan, it is abbreviated in the Bible as capital C, capital N, capital U, capital N, Canaan. And that's how they got Canaan or the Canaanites. And then the for Lebanon, it is spelt capital L, capital B, capital N, capital U, capital N. That's the abbreviation. So they're thinking Lebanon out of that. And he's making the claim it's the White Mountain. Furthermore, we see unto the great river, the river part in Deuteronomy, capital PRT. PRT is localized as Euphrates. However, what lies beyond Mount Blanc is the river Dunabe, which is largely tributary prout. The Bible says, When we departed from Horeb, we went through all the great and terrible wilderness. Deuteronomy 119. The famous Phlegrian fields that are located near Vesuvius, Horeb, fit this description perfectly. Large areas of scorched land full of small volcanoes, fumaroles, and layers of lava. According to the Bible, the Israelis, I'm sorry, the Israeli Israelites came to capital K, capital D, capital S, capital H, capital V, capital R, capital N, capital A, capital E. Vocalized as Kadesh Barnea. However, the town in question may well be Cadiz upon the Rhone. Cadiz on the Rhone might be another name of the modern Geneva, or indeed the Bulgarian city of Varna. Further in the Bible we see, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. Deuteronomy 2.1 Theologians left the word Seir without translation. If we translate it, we shall get the Devil's Mountains. A mountain by this name exists 
near Lake Geneva, Mount Diablert, the Devil's Mountain. The sons of Lot encountered on the way may well be the Latin population. The river Arnon, capital A-R-N-N, is mentioned in Deuteronomy. This may well be the Italian river Arno. The Israelites went up the way to Bashan, according to Deuteronomy 3.1. The town of Bashan is often mentioned by the Bible. Amazingly enough, a town by the name of Bassano still exists in Italy. The Bible proceeds to mention that the king of Bashan came out against us to battle at Idri, Deuteronomy. This is clearly a reference to Adria near the Po century. As for Po itself, ancient Latin authors often refer to it as Jordan. The name concurs with the biblical capital J-R-D-N, perfectly well. According to the Bible, there was not a city which we took not from them three score cities. Deuteronomy 3.4 Indeed, many large towns were located in this area in the Middle Ages. Verona, Padua, Ferrara, Bologna. The Bible mentions the land from the river of Arnon unto Mount Hermon. However, the Hermon Mountains can also be vocalized as the German mountains. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained. His bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbath of the children of Ammon? Deuteronomy. Rabbath is Ravenna, and the coffin of Og, Goth, is the sepulchre of Theodoric the Goth located in Ravana? Theodoric is supposed to have lived in 493 to 526 AD, so this biblical text could not have appeared before the 6th century, even in Scaligerian chronology. The Israelites are supposed to have stopped at Tibray, or the, the place Tibera, Numbers 11.3. Bearing the previous identifications in mind, we can recognize the Italian river Tiber in this name. Furthermore, Cien is Siena to the south, east from Liverno. The biblical Hebron, Genesis 23.2, is possibly Gorgo de Rhone. The slopes of Monte Viso are called Jebus. The city of Rome is called Rama in Judges 19.13. All the quotes are from the authorized version of the Bible, and there are many more examples. It is thus possible that a part of the events described in the Bible, namely the journey of the Israelites led by Moses and their subsequent conquest of the Promised Land with Joshua, took place in Europe, and particularly in Italy, as opposed to Palestine. The localizations of the ancient states mentioned in the Bible also raise a vast number of questions. The Bible often mentions the Phoenician towns of Tyre and Sidon, since we now allow for possibilities of medieval interpretations of many biblical names, one cannot fail to notice the similarities between the names of Phoenicia and Phoenicia. <clears throat> Excuse me. They may well be the same name if we consider the usual rules of flexion. One comes up with the hypothesis of localizing the biblical Phoenicia as the medieval Venice. Indeed, the Bible describes the ancient Phoenicia as a powerful nation of seafarers. 
that reigned over the entire Mediterranean, with colonies in Sicily, Spain, and Africa. Ancient Phoenicians traded extensively with faraway lands, as can be seen in the book of Ezekiel chapter 27. All of these biblical criteria are met by the medieval Venetian Republic, a well-known and powerful state. The Scaligerian history claims the principal Phoenicians' towns to have been the modern Tyre and Sidian. Do these towns fit the biblical descriptions of lavishness and splendor? A 19th century volume of sailing directions for seamen tells us the following about Saida. The town had 1,600 inhabitants in 1818. There is a small bay to the south, a small pier that is barely visible in our day used to belong to a small harbor that is now completely covered by the sands. Plague often rages fiercely here. One finds no traces of former splendor in Saida nowadays. There's a reef on the south end, and it's very shallow in the north. The depth between the town and the island is uneven. The passage is narrow, and the bottom is full of stones. A large ship's boat cannot come close to the shore, which makes it impossible to replenish water supply here. The town is located in the estuary of a river that isn't navigable by ships. Its main means of survival in the 19th century had been the local gardens. Strategically speaking, Saida's location is perfectly hopeless. It used to belong to virtually everyone during the Crusades epoch. There are no records mentioning it as a large independent trade center. All of this contradicts the biblical descriptions of the greatness of Sidon and Phoenicia. The situation with Tyre is similar. Evidently, the Bible is referring to other locations. The Mystery Renaissance Epoch as a product of the Scaligerian chronology. The Scaligerian chronology is very fond of the Renaissance motif, appealing to the archetypal recurrence of the classic age. The ancient Plato is supposed to have been the founding father of Platonism. His teaching allegedly falls into oblivion for centuries to come and is revived by the famous Neoplatonist Platonius, allegedly in 205 to 270 AD. The similarity of his name to that of his teacher is purely accidental, of course. Then Neoplatonism perishes as well in order to be revived again in the 15th century AD by another famous Platonist, Gemisto Pleton, whose name is also identical to that of his teacher as a result of sheer coincidence. The medieval Pleton is supposed to have revived the ancient Platonism, having been an avid advocate of the ancient sage Plato. Furthermore, it is only in the 15th century that Plato's manuscript was unearthed. This is precisely the epoch of Gemston Pleton. Pleton founds Pleton's Academy in Florence in the image of the ancient Plato's Academy. A. A. Valslev writes that his sojourn in Florence had been one of the most important periods for Italy when it was importing the ancient Greek science and Plato's philosophy in particular. Both Plato and Pleton write utopian works. 
Jemiston Pleaton is reported to have been the author of the famous Tractate on the Laws, which sadly failed to reach us in its entirety. However, the full text of Plato's Tractate by the same title did. Pleaton, who lived in the 15th century, also suggests the construction of an ideal state with his program being extremely close to Plato's. Plotin had allegedly lived in 205 to 270 AD, is yet another one to have hoped the emperor would aid the foundation of the city of Platonopolis in Compagnia, Italy again, where he had planned to introduce communal aristocratic institutions a la Plato. Many prominent ecclesial leaders have historical doppelgangers in Scaliger's chronology. Eusebius in his Historia Ecclesiastica makes many references to a certain Bishop Victor who played a key role in the so-called Eastern Dispute or the introduction of Pascalian rules. There is indeed an Easter dispute known to history and associated with the name of Victor as reflected in the term the Pascalian cycle of Victor. However, this dispute and Victor's lifetime are ascribed to 463 AD, whereas Eusebius, who reports this, is supposed to have lived in the 3rd and 4th century. The Scaligerian chronology would appear to be inverted. So it seems like Joseph Scalinger's chronology is a lot like the Middle Eastern maps. Inverted. Furthermore, Eusebius tells us of a famed Dionysus who formulated the rules for celebrating Easter, having linked it to the spring equinox and the suffering of the Savior. According to Eusebius, Dionysus is supposed to have died in the 12th year of Galenus, which is 265 AD in the Scaligerian chronology. It is most remarkable that another well-known scientist by the name of Dionysus existed in the 6th century, namely Dionysus Exegus. He is supposed to have conducted an in-depth study of the Pascalian problem and deduced the date of Christ's birth for the very first time. Apart from this, he calculated the advent of Easter for many years ahead, affixing it to the spring equinox. We have two eminent scientists by the name of Dionysus who studied the Pascalian problem and the relation of Easter to the vernal equinox, both following Victor, who already possesses a duplicate of his own. However, they are separated by a period of three centuries according to Scaligerian chronology. This is evidently a mistake. There was only one Dionysus whose double existed on paper exclusively. Actually, we are to acquaint ourselves with yet another Dionysus, the Little, who must have been the prototype of both. We are referring to Dionysus Patavius, who lived in the 17th century. We see strange duplicates in the Scaligerian history of the famous Res Romana as well. F. Schupfert writes that 
the series of prominent Roman lawyers ends with Arrhenius Modestine, who died in 244 AD. After that, the entire discipline of law enters a lethargic phase to be revived in 900 years by Arrhenius, who was the double of Arrhenius in activity as well as the name. It's suddenly it's, it is suddenly resurrected in the entirety of its primordial grace in Bologna. <clears throat> the medieval Irenaeus, ancient Irenaeus, question mark, the founder of the school, started lecturing in Roman law around 1088 AD, reviving it after an alleged nine-century period of oblivion. He is also supposed to have collected the ancient codices of Justinian. There are two famous homers in Scaligerian history, the ancient poet and the medieval Engelbert Homer, who is supposed to have belonged to Charlemagne's court in the 9th century. He must have received his academic name Homer for his poetical works, suggests G. Weber. Very few poetic works of Engelbert have reached us. This medieval Homer has been an important member of the circle of scientists that existed in the I, in the Achean court of Charlemagne. It has to be noted that Charlemagne is in no way a personal name as we tend to think today. Most probably it used to mean the great king. The question of who exactly was referred to in that manner deserves a special study and we shall return to it below. In figure 144, we can see a portrait of Charlemagne painted by Albrecht Dürer in the 16th century. The ancient Roman Count of Time by Ides and Collins is assumed to have gone out of use in the 6th and 7th century AD. Nevertheless, the medieval chronographers of the 14th century AD appeared to have been unaware of this fact, using the long-forgotten Ides and Kalends wherever they saw fit. There's a large number of such odd doubles in the Scaligerian history. We are not claiming they prove our statements. One may indeed find a large number of isolated coincidences. What we emphasize is the global nature of these duplicates and parallels, fitting the general scheme of chronological shifts, which covers sequences of hundreds of years, side by side, and following each other for hundreds of years to come. One of the principal indications of the medieval origins of many ancient documents is the very existence of Renaissance epoch, when all of the ancient scientific disciplines, philosophy, arts, and culture in general are assumed to have been revived. The resplendent classical Latin degrades into a rough and clumsy lingo that only manages to regain its former splendor in the Renaissance epoch. This revival of Latin and classical Greek begins in the 8th through 9th century AD. The famed medieval troubadours begin to use the plots that the historians call a masquerade of classical recollections. In the alleged 10th and 11th century, the history of Ulysses' Odyssey 
appears in the 11th century as the medieval remake of the well-known classical story, complete with knights, bells, dames, jousting tournaments. In fact, all the elements that shall later be considered integral to a classical plot. The troubadours were proudly claiming the story of the Trojan War. To have been an original one, it had neither been told nor written by anyone before. The troubadours' primary concern was the Trojan War. It had almost been a native story for them. The Franks considered themselves descendants of the Trojans, while the alleged 7th century author Fredegarius Scholasticus refers to King Priam as a representative of the previous generation. Furthermore, the voyage of the Argonauts became confused with the Trojan War when the Crusader conquerors, apparently the medieval prototypes of the ancient Argonauts, had set forth in the direction of faraway Asian lands. In medieval texts, the ancient Alexander the Great compliments the French. Certain Slavonic texts of the Middle Ages used the name Paris, Parisa, the Russian name for the city of Paris. In order to refer to Paris, the abductor of Helen, when they speak of the ancient Trojan War, could it have referred to somebody from Paris? The following is said, for instance, Parisa called himself Alexander and deceived Helen. The same medieval text often demonstrates the flexion of P and F spelling Parisa as Fariza. On figures 1.45, we see an ancient miniature from the great French chronicle dated to the alleged 15th century that depicts the Trojan origins of the Franks. Modern commentary is as follows. The miniature illustrates the idea that the French can trace their ancestry back to Francion, the son of Hector, the grandson of the Trojan king Priam. This is why we see the foundation of Paris directly under the picture of the fall of Troy. So Troy barely has the time to fall when Paris is founded. The ancient Troy is also represented as a medieval city here. Scaligerian chronology reckons that the so-called apocalyptic nations of Gog and Magog mentioned in the Bible disappeared from the historical arena in the early Middle Ages. However, reading modern commentary to the medieval Alexandria, we find out that the names Gadi and Magadi must be a repercussion of the apocalyptic nations of Gog and Magog, identified as the memories of the Goths and the Mongols, who were well known in the Middle Ages. The pressure of Scaligerian chronology and all of these oddities brings historians to the conclusion that the Middle Ages were the time when all idea of chronological consequentiality had been lost. Monks with crosses and thuribles at the funeral of Alexander the Great, Catalina attending mass, Orpheus becomes a contemporary of Aeneas, Sardanapal of Greek, king and julian the apostate a papal chaplain everything acquires a hue of fantasy in this world this perplexes the modern historian greatly 
The most blatant anachronisms and the strangest fancies coexist peacefully. All these facts and thousands of others are rejected by historians since they contradict the consensual chronology of Scalinger and Patavius. Christian saints and ancient pagan characters can be seen side by side on medieval Gothic cathedrals in figures 1.46, which shows the sculptures of Aristotle and Pythagoras together with the Christian saints from the western facade of the Chartres Cathedral. The historians try to explain this chronological hearsay in a rather vague manner. Aristotle and Pythagoras, the two pagan philosophers on a Christian cathedral, symbolize the importance of scientific knowledge. The oldest biography of the ancient Aristotle is dated to 1300 AD. The manuscript's condition rapidly deteriorates. Certain places which could be read perfectly well in the 19th century are a great effort to make out nowadays. Did I read that right? The manuscript's condition rapidly deteriorates. Certain places which could be read perfectly well in the 19th century are a great effort to make out nowadays. All of this despite the fact that, according to Scaligerian chronology, certain manuscripts whose age exceeds a thousand years are still perfectly legible, and their parchment remains in excellent condition. Historians are most probably right in their estimation of manuscript destruction rate. Many old texts may well be preserved precisely because they are really are not quite as old as we think them to be. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Historians are most probably right in their estimation of manuscript destruction rate. Many old texts may be well preserved precisely because they really are not quite as old as we think them to be. Presumably, the best Greek codices of Aristotle's works belong to the 10th and 12th century. The ancient argument between the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle is revived in the 15th century when Pleton and Scholarius, a devotee of Aristotle, engage in a similar dispute. This is yet another odd medieval duplicate of ancient events. The history of Europe's first acquaintance with the works of Aristotle wasn't studied until the 19th century. It is written that Aristotle's philosophy had remained in a state of stagnation 1,230 years since the birth of Christ. We would also like to quote the opinion of contemporary historians on, these, on this issue, namely that the medieval authors had a penchant of referring to texts that they often were altogether unacquainted with. In the Middle Ages, the somewhat barbaric shape of the dispute between the realists and the nominalists really represents the renaissance of the two immortal schools of idealism and empiricism. Nominalism and realism signified a rebirth of the teachings of Plato and Aristotle in the 7th century. It is also assumed that the originals of Plato's and Aristotle's works were unknown in Europe in that epoch. Weren't yet written, perhaps? 
Yet another chronological duplicate, antiquity equals middle ages. Three of the four principal philosophical systems of the classical age were represented in the medieval science. In the 7th through 8th century Paris, the collision of realism and nominalism gave birth to the skepticism at last. Another system that was the latest to have appeared in Greece had also seemed imminent, namely that of mysticism. Indeed, mysticism soon becomes revived by Bonaventura. Thus, the evolution of medieval philosophy faithfully mirrors even the minute details of the development of its predecessor. Let us present this information as a table. The Middle Ages, the Classical Age, Realism, Idealism, Nominalism, Empiricism, Platon, the initiator of the revival of Platonism, Plato, the founder of Platonism, Scalarius, the initiator of the revival of Aristotelism, Aristotle, the founder of Aristotelism, confrontation between the two schools, confrontation between the two schools, confrontation between Platon and Scalarius, confrontation between the Platonists and the Aristotelists, the Nicaeans of skepticism, the Nicaeans of skepticism, Mysticism evolves after the three schools. Mysticism evolves after the three schools. A total of four principal medieval schools of thought. A total of four principal classical schools of thought. A long time before the discovery of the ancient manuscript of the Golden Ass, the entire ass topic had been well developed by the medieval troubadours. The classical ass story that surfaced as late as the Renaissance is a logical conclusion of the entire medieval cycle. One has to note that long before the discoveries of the classical originals, all of the main plots they contain had been developed by the troubadours, the ancient originals being in fact subsequent chronology, subsequent chronologically as well as structurally. Long before the discovery of the ancient fables of Aesop, similar tales were told in the Middle Ages, in the alleged 11th through 13th century. An important fact to note is that the ancient people didn't have fixed names in the modern sense. What they used instead were aliases, which had explicit meanings in the original language. The the aliases characterized a person in some manner. The more remarkable qualities a person had, the more aliases he or she would be likely to possess. B.L. Smirnoff says that one seldom finds a name that would mean nothing. For instance, the chroniclers could refer to an emperor by the alias used in their own region. And so different chronicles refer to the same rulers by different names. The Egyptian pharaohs used to have different names before and after their coronation, as multiple coronations would take place in different regions. The list of names kept growing. These aliases usually translate as the mighty, the fair, etc. The father of a Roman consul who lived in the alleged year 169 BC had 13 names. His son had 38. 
the Torah scholars quote 94 names for the biblical God. The same phenomenon was typical in Russian history. Tsar Ivan III was also known as Timothy. Tsar Basil III was known as Gabriel. Prince Dmitri, who had been killed in Uglik, was called Uar. One name was secular and the other ecclesial. The name Uar most probably simply meant Tsar. Nowadays, we tend to assume the medieval names differ significantly from the ancient ones. However, the analysis of a number of texts shows us that ancient names were in use throughout the Middle Ages. Nihilus of Sinai, who was supposed to have died in 450 AD, writes to his contemporaries addressing them with typically ancient names. Apollodorus, Amphication, Atticus, Anaxagoras, Demosothenes, Aristocles, Aristocras, Alasiviatus, Apollos. Many of the names considered exclusively ancient nowadays were still in use in the Byzantium in the 7th through 9th. I'm sorry. Yeah, 7th through 9th century. Georgius France used the following names in his history Antioch, Argo, Armorius, Hermitian, Demetrios, Dionysus, Cleope, Critopoulos, Macrobius, Minos. Typical ancient names worn by people of the 13th and 15th century. Handwritten books remained in existence for a long time after the invention of the printing press. They were made in large quantities in the 15th through 18th century all across Europe. In the Balkans, handwritten books managed to compete with the printed ones. As recently as in the 19th century, apart from a few exceptions, the entire Irish literature of the 7th through 17th century only exists in handwritten form. Up until 1500 AD, 77% of all printed books are supposed to have been in Latin, possibly due to the fact that the Romanic fonts were easy to make. Other fonts made their way into the printing practice extremely slowly. Diacritic signs were difficult to make as well as the ones used for stresses vocalizations, etc. This is why the scribes remained without competition in what concerned copying the Greek, Arabic, and Hebraic manuscripts for centuries after the invention of the printing press. This may be the reason why many Greek, Arabic, and Hebraic manuscripts considered very ancient really pertain to the epoch of printing. Among them are many classical texts. Hessendorf's Biblical Codices. It appears that the region richest in handwritten books dating from the epoch of printing was Greece, the country that is considered to have a very long ancient history, one that gave the world a large number of ancient manuscripts. Historians tell us that due to the lack of publishing houses in Greece, books were copied manually. One wonders how many handwritten books of the 15th through 19th century were to be declared ancient later on. 
The following information clearly demonstrates the lack of a solid scientific foundation under the very concept of paleographical dating. That is, dating by the handwriting style. It turns out that the creation of the deluxe Greek codices with the text of ancient authors was ordered by humanists and philanthropist collectors. Let us repeat the question. How many of these medieval codices were later declared extremely ancient? One might suggest a method that allows the differentiation between real manuscripts and handwritten copies of printed books namely comparing the misprints in the printed versions with the handwriting errors since during the manual copying of printed literature most misprints would get copied as well the foundations of the scaligerian chronology had been laid by the analysis of written sources a secondary analysis of these datings free from a priori hypotheses about the antiquity of the documents may lead to the discovery of serious contradictions as we have demonstrated. The foundations of archaeological methods have been based on the Scaligerian chronology from the very beginning. How come there was no battle? The results of excavations conducted by the Swiss anthropologist Georg Glovaki in Italy proved sensational. The scientists discovered that there was no military action conducted in the area where the troops of Hannibal had allegedly defeated the Roman legions in the Battle of Canes. A study of the Barros showed that the remains belonged to the victims of the 13th century plague epidemic and not to Roman soldiers, as everyone was accustomed to thinking. Well, my friends, what do you think about that? Does it really surprise you? Does it really surprise you? I think for me, it's beginning to open up some interesting ideas on geography and the true, the true migrations of said people. And I don't know if it's a conspiracy. It might be. I'm sure there's people that know the truth, that maybe hang out in some sort of diaspora community. That I, I, It's pretty interesting to think that maybe the Israelites made their way to Switzerland or made their way through the Alps or made their way that way. You know, then you bring in the whole Knights Templar and it just puts a huge twist on the whole Crusades and... It's pretty fascinating, I think. And while some people know the truth, it seems like it could very easily have just been mismanaged documentation. Think about how mismanaged things are now. You know, translation means interpretation. That's, you know, tying it together with what we have with COVID now. Doesn't this whole COVID thing just make you realize experts don't know what the fuck they're talking about? Like there's all like, these doctors say this, these doctors say that. You're telling me you can't have a general consensus by doctors in multiple countries to isolate a fucking virus and every one of you sees the same fucking picture? Just goes to show you experts are fucking 
expertly retarded. Anyways, that's what we got for today. I, th I think it's so fascinating to think that classical times could actually be medieval times. Why not? I'm, you know what I'm really looking forward to? Coming up in the next few chapters, we're going to get into the astronomy of it. And they're going to utilize the different constellations. And they're going to go over biblical constellations and compare them to now. And I'm really looking forward to that part. So anyways, thanks for following along with me today. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you find this as interesting as I do. And if you leave a comment and subscribe to my channel on any platform or on my YouTube channel, reach out to me, let me know, and I will, uh, I'll, send you a, I'll send you an audio book of one of my favorites that I, I think you'll like. So uh, yeah, do that. I could use the help. Please reach out, leave a comment, give me a five-star rating. And know this, I hope you have a great day. Looking forward to further talks. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart, and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, Follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.